stand out from the crowd? Are you looking for exclusive content you can't get anywhere else? Sign up for the shoulder of Orion Patreon at bladerunnerpodcast.com slash support and show the world you're something special. The following audio entertainment is brought to you by the kind folks at Tyrell Corporation, reminding you that civil registration isn't just common sense, it's the law. Well, thanks for joining us, everyone. Today, our guest on, on our show is producer, writer, director, Charles de la Zurica. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm your host, Jamie Prater, and I'm joined by hosts Patrick Green and Dan Ferlito. And uh, this is uh, another entry into our series, this, A 700 Layer Cake, The Cult of Blade Runner. And um, so we're just, so we are just exploring really what Blade Runner is, what it was in terms of its beginnings. Uh, it is 2019. Obviously, it's a seminal year for Blade Runner for uh, the uh, in terms of the time and where it's set. And uh, yeah, so this is just another, uh, another entry. And we really wanted to talk to you, Charles. Thank you so much for coming on. And there, there's really, there's kind of a lot to talk about in terms of this film Phantom is much bigger thanks to 2049. Um, whether people love it or don't, it's just uh, it, it's really kind of changed the atmosphere of, of of fandom and it's kind of welcomed new people. But really, we decided to kind of go back and start from the beginning, and uh, that the beginning is is so interesting and complicated because there are kind of many beginnings, and whether it's the theatrical cut of Blade Runner down to uh, the final cut which you produced. Uh, we just really wanted to kind of get into kind of the world of the final cut and uh, certainly the deleted scenes and talk about um, just kind of everything involved in that. But before we kind of get into any of those things, I want to kind of ask you what being in 2019, like how you, how are you feeling about kind of the world of Blade Runner as it, as it is today? It's, it's definitely bigger, um, but it's, again surreal because we are in 2019 what's kind of going through your head these days um well there's a couple different fronts in that regard um there's the film itself and and my feelings towards it and what what's come out since but then also the world itself and how the world is reflecting uh, the fictional 2019 from 1982. And, and that one is more interesting to me uh, to like see how the world is either becoming very much like Blade Runner or not at all. And I find that to be interesting. I find like being able to go into a major city, especially downtown L.A., and seeing, you know, massive video screens and huge neon signs and, and just like... The, the cosmetic, uh, superficial aspects of Blade Runner are very much in play. You know, it's very multicultural. It just feels like that part it got right. We don't have spinners. We don't have replicants. You know, probably on the on the the cusp of cloning, uh, probably human cloning in some other country somewhere is happening right now illegally. Who knows? But um, 
it's like I feel like we're kind of I mean it's pretty amazing how well the, the original film has held up in terms of its predictions of the future even if some of the details like vid phones and Atari and Pan Am and all that uh, isn't quite accurate um, it's still fascinating to see like back in 1981 when they were making the movie um, that Ridley and the crew just had such a great sense of what was to come in a way that I don't think we have now with films today I mean films being made today science fiction films especially that are predicting what it's going to be like 30 years from now or whatever I feel like they are just variations of Blade Runner it's like they're variations of things we've already seen that blew us away back in 1982 so I'm really eager uh, for some filmmaker to to really you know get under the hood of of our, our present day and then try to imagine what it's going to be like 30 years from now based on where we're at today um, that's interesting to me. Um, as far as like the Blade Runner universe and fandom and and 2049 and everything else, I mean, I have a complicated relationship with it. I just I'm in a you know unique position that uh, I think it's fair to say that you know a lot of people aren't in. So it's like I I, I still love the original film and I, I still there's so much of it that inspires me, um, especially in terms of the the filmmaking and so many of the talented people who worked on it. Um, but the evolution of of fandom, you know, from when back when Blade Runner came out and it bombed and it was, you know, kind of uh, derided when it first came out to those those years of those early years of home video when people started rediscovering it or discovering it for the first time and started falling in love with it and watching it over and over again and becoming more and more immersed in that universe like that whole I feel like that whole um, beautiful period of discovery with the original film is over. Um, just simply, it's, it's kind of a victim of its own originality and, and its own impact. Because when people make a, a futuristic movie now, it's pretty much got the stink of Blade Runner on it, whether they like it or not. Um, you know, unless it's something like some pristine, clean Kubrickian future. Generally speaking, Blade Runner has had an impact on almost every science fiction future we've seen. So, uh, and even and even look at like Star Wars, like Attack of the Clones has that speeder chase through Coruscant, and they fly over what looks exactly like the Hades landscape in Blade Runner. So even that, you know, it's like the snake eating its own tail. Um, so that's a long, convoluted answer to your question, but I, I honestly I don't sit around and like think of articulate ways to express it. I just kind of blurt it out, and that's my blurt for for Blade Runner. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, I can't imagine your perspective exactly, just because you're so in the woods and have been so close to all these people that have been in the production and done all this work, which is incredible. But, um, luckily, you know, you're really open about sharing your experiences and talking about it. And, you know, that's shown in all your several interviews and that's been really phenomenal to go back and listen to, which again, for listeners, um, you didn't, you did a split interview with Jamie, one on perfect organism about alien and Prometheus and that world. And one on uh, blade runner. So people can go back and listen to that. And, um, yeah, I think we were going to, possibly pivot to fandom as well but i'll let jamie take it back well i what i'm curious about i think right now is uh i mean there's there's so many things um uh, and i know that you have uh, you spoke to me kind of privately about uh going and being on some panels and discussing blade runner um and you have a unique a unique uh connection not just a connection obviously a unique i would say a unique ownership to this film having been the last person to really have their hands on it um and so i i feel like people at least the people that i know look to you in the in in a way that they look to ridley scott where not only are you responsible as being the director of dangerous days which is of course the documentary that's included with the final cut but also uh 
putting the final cut together. And uh, have you, I, I suppose uh, this question would be, have you, with that knowledge, with that experience being in 2019, do you feel like people are reaching out to you in, in, in a way that's uh, respecting that ownership? Hopefully that makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. I, 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 it's hard for me to claim any ownership. I was, you know, I, I borrowed the keys of the car and drove it around a little bit. I don't own the car, you know? <laughs> um, but it like that, I, 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 I love, um, I love the history, I guess, that I have with Blade Runner in terms of, it, of the final cut and dangerous days and the whole exploration of that world, both, um, in universe and behind the scenes and the making of the film. I mean, that was, that was a dream come true, uh, to work on that. And, um, over the course of a few years and having the access to the materials that, that myself and, and the team had was intoxicating. And it was, it was really just, I mean, it was amazing. I mean, any Blade Runner fan would lose themselves <laughs> in these, you know, boxes and boxes of, of film and tape and artifacts that have, you know, been just sitting there for, you know, since the film was finished. So, yeah, I, I, I you know, people have definitely been reaching out more, um, this year. Um, and I, I appreciate that. And I'm going to be speaking about it, uh, at, at a few different venues, but I, you know, ownership is a, is a, is a big word as it's, it's a powerful word. And it's not one I, I would ever, you know, assume, but, uh, I do, I do, I have enjoyed my time um, with Blade Runner simply because it's a film that had an enormous impact on me and the fact that I was able to, you know, be an advocate for what I felt was the purest version of the film and um, also really going after as much material as I could for the documentary. I mean, I think a lot of times when you have these special edition home video releases, you get a producer who, you know, might be connected to the director, they might be connected to the studio, they get hired to do a job and they do the best job they can. They go and research and they go try to, you know, dig up all the stuff they're supposed to dig up. But for me, it was that plus, you know, an, an infinite amount of love and passion and freakish nerditry, if that's a word, uh, over Blade Runner. I mean, I was just so myopic in what we had to find and what we had to dig up and how to present it. And it was just it was it was everything to me for the time that I was working on it, and I and I frankly we could have worked on it for a couple more years because we I, I felt like what we put out was still kind of unfinished, but I I was happy with it. Don't get me wrong, like I was very happy with it, and I'm glad that people seem to be happy with it. But it was just one of those. It was almost like a relationship. It's just something I wanted to keep. I wanted to keep working on. Um, so totally. you know, that's on a, that, that note. Yeah, um, we were just. Well, almost just about a month ago, we were at uh, Joanna Cassidy's house. She invited us to right. interview her, and uh, she was discussing, of course, the 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 role that she, you know having to come back and shoot those scenes, which of course that we can see because you know all of the behind the scenes material is available. But she was really so thankful for the opportunity to kind of finish what she started because she felt like she never um, finished the you know her role like she felt like you know because they had one take and of course as you know running through the glass and and the wig and all of those things uh it, it always was kind of there with her like i need i, I want to redo this i want to redo this and she was able to redo this but more surprisingly with with uh joanna cassidy was as an actor in the film and the role that she had and how that role stays with her how the spell 
of Blade Runner is still over her. And that is something that surprised me. Oftentimes you have actors who perform roles and they perform those roles and they're moving on to other things. And they're like, oh yeah, that was a great project. But they're kind of always in other spaces where with Joanna, she was like, no, this movie is profound. And it's one of the most profound, one of the most profoundest films she's had ever seen. And she's like, and it might be the most ever. And uh, it was great to hear that from someone who was such an integral part of the film. Um, and I, I hear that reflected in your voice as well when you speak that this film, there's just something about it that stays with you. And it's not just like, oh, yeah, these are great ideas and all of these things that we've all already talked about. It's something deeper. It's almost like a, a religious experience. So, um, Yeah, it, I mean, it is. I think any any work of art that has that sort of deep of a connection with people and um, – and when it gets to kind of critical mass and it becomes a very popular um, kind of a pop culture phenomenon like Blade Runner became, um, I, I think it's I think it's great that, that when you can kind of embrace it, especially when you're like Joanna and you've had a long career and you've made a, a lot of different you know films and, and TV shows that there's the one special one that she still, you know, covets and 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 and, you know, respects and, and is proud of. Um you know, I, I listened to a, a podcast with Jeff Bridges recently, and you know, Jeff Bridges has had a phenomenal career, and he's made so many films, and he's you know won the Oscar and all that stuff. But he has fully embraced the dude. It's like that's his character. Like that, you know, he's made he made many movies before Big Lebowski. He made many movies after it, but that's the one that caught fire and just got that special that special relationship with the audience, and um, and he embraced it. And some some actors don't. Some actors want to really prove that there's more to them than that. So I think it's great when an actor like Jeff Bridges or Joanna or anyone else can say, I, I don't care about, you know, proving myself uh, beyond this character. I love this character. I love this movie. And I'm going to keep loving it for as long as I can. I think that's that's beautiful. Yeah, it really is. I agree with you. And and uh, even aside from a single actor or a single character, um, one thing that it's just rare to run into, especially uh, in the contemporary moment and not, you know, with, with 2020 hindsight, it's easy to go back now for people and be like, Oh, this movie's a masterpiece. But when you go back and find people who felt that way initially, even with, you know, maybe critical review, not being that great. Um, speaking of which I was just listening to a podcast about paths of glory, the, uh, 1958, I want to say uh, Kubrick film in black and white about world war one, but Kirk Douglas is in that. And Kirk Douglas famously said like when they wrapped, I think he said, I don't need, you know, 30 years to know that this movie is going to be a classic. Like I already know that right now. And right. those moments I think are so striking because they're so rare. You know, I, I can only imagine that when you're involved in a project um, like your documentaries that you've gotten involved in or your, or your films that, you know, when you're done, it's hard to know whether what you made is going to be good because, you know, you're so in the woods, you've done so much work and editing and cutting that you have to wait for audience response. And, and all the more so if the audience response or the critical reception is poor, it's got to be such a blow at the time when you're the director or the producer, but then to watch something kind of, not rise from the grave, but you know, Blade Runner has had this huge rise as obviously, as we all know, as, as uh, tapes and, and DVDs started to come out where it had a resurgence. And, and I feel like even that's rare. So yeah, it seems like there's so many different things in history that happened to um, make this film continue to be not just relevant, but 
to be recognized by even new viewers as a masterpiece and to see the influence that it had on the rest of the science fiction world. I just feel like it's that's such a rare thing that you don't see very often. Well, and you can also see other films that almost have, I was about to say replicated. I didn't want to make a pun, but it's almost <laughs> like, um, like look at Apocalypse Now, right? That was a film that had a very troubled production, famously, and uh, from a visionary director who basically had to sell his house and all of his belongings to finish the film over the course of you know a few years. And the film came out and it was kind of, uh, I would say, a mixed reception, even though people pro- probably back then, I mean, I was a little kid, but... I imagine people were blown away by these the grandeur and the scope of it, but you know the meaning of it, and certainly the third act of the film was probably very confusing to people. And over the course of, of you know the years since, you know people definitely recognize it as a classic, as one of Coppola's masterpieces. But even that, it doesn't quite have that same like geek love that Blade Runner has. And and it and it's a, it's a magnificent film. That's also one of my all time favorite movies. And sure. I uh, and I and I feel like it's an absolute masterpiece, and it it has so many of the same elements that Blade Runner has in terms of a uh, you know troubled production, visually stunning, incredible cast, um, kind of a cryptic narrative, you know, that you have to interpret on your own. Um, all the same things, and yet Blade Runner kind of caught fire one level beyond that. I think just in terms of maybe it was the the world that was imagined. It was it was the the streets and and the and the the atmosphere and the characters and just kind of like the weirdness of Blade Runner. There, there's so much in Blade Runner that doesn't make sense, and yet you still accept it. It's fine because it's its own little microcosm, you know. And and I think that is the inner life of of, of Blade Runner is that it just it's its own thing in so many different ways. And even if it doesn't make sense, you still want it. You still want to be a part of it. You still want to try to understand it. It's a puzzle you keep wanting to solve. And I think that's what makes it such a great film. Oh, yeah. And, and well, and, you know, at, at the risk of being forward, I, I'm, you have such a great um, modesty about your work, which is which is really wonderful. And, and but I'm not going to let you slink away in modesty because I'm going to adjust your your car analogy about, you know, taking the keys. I actually think that you took a car that was you know, really beautiful, but had some rust and had some things falling off here and there. And you took that car and really restored it to its original concept and its original glory. And I think, uh, kind of to wrap the conversation on that subject, um, I, I, and I'm sure you are, but I, I would just like to point out that how proud you should be for the work that you took part in to really, um, make it a mass or, you know, to, to, I struggle to even find the right words because clean up isn't the right word, but to really polish it into something that now it's like, yeah, like I just watched the work print for my first time ever recently and it was amazing. And I loved the differences in the music and everything. But if I only have one shot to introduce a new fan or a person that's curious into Blade Runner, they're like, Oh, you're on a podcast. Like, Oh, I should check this out. I've never seen this film. I mean, the final cut is what I show them. And you know, there, and there are some disagreements in fandom and some nostalgia where people just have to see the theatrical cut and they can't do without the voiceover and all that. But, um, you know, I, I really want to forward you the compliment of all the fans, which I'm sure you've seen online who are just so, so happy with the final product that came out in the final cut. So just wanted to say well that. I, I i very much appreciate that I, I really do and i'll just say that i'm I'm just happy we didn't screw it up because <laughs> that that would that would have been easily accomplished and i think in the wrong hands and with the wrong um sort of philosophy in terms of how we approached it um i i won't mention 
the movies. Um, I think it's obvious what I'm talking about, but there are certain special editions of other movies that get, you know, really overly reworked and tweaked and, and enhanced. And, and then to, to such a point where the fans are like, well, that's not the movie I grew up with. And then the, the, the double whammy is those original versions not being available to those fans. Um, that's why with this, with Blade Runner, I, I was adamant to like take a very um, delicate approach to the restoration. And I, and I kept telling everybody, you know, this this has to be right. It has to look good. Otherwise, we're not going to put it in. Like if Joanna's reshoot looked terrible and it was and it took you out of the movie even more than the original stunt double uh, bit did, then we, we shouldn't put it in because we're just making a new mess, you know. So it was like with a very kind of fine tooth comb, we approached the restoration of Blade Runner. And, and, and also, again, for those who may not like what was in the final cut, that's why I, I was really encouraging Warner Brothers, and, and they were amazing in terms of being amenable to this, was let's include all the versions in the best possible way we can. Let's remaster these. I mean, even the work print, which was beat up and scratched and looked like it had been dragged behind a truck, uh, it, it, you know, we, we cleaned it up as best we could. So, um, you know, that way everyone's happy. You know, everyone who loves the film will be happy. You will get the best version of what you want, along with the director's final version of the film. And um, that I feel like that's the way all of these multiple version, you know, movies should be handled. Um, if you can get just give people what they want, they'll be happy. And, and I don't know why some people refuse to do that, but they do for <laughs> any number of reasons. I don't I don't I don't understand it, but it's their film and it's their call. But I, I, you know, I think it's possible to make people happy. You you know, they'll say, Oh, you can't make everybody happy. I think, well, you can make most people happy. You know, that's possible. You can't do that. And I feel like with Blade Runner, we we did, we didn't, we didn't screw it up. And if there's anything you don't like, we give you the version that you do like. Totally. And on that, in this line of discussion, I have to say the experience of Blade Runner, especially, especially the final cut, I feel like is this experience where when we watch the film, we're also watching it with the knowledge of dangerous days and so it's this, it is this kind of complete package where it's, you have a, you are, you are able to watch any kind of iteration of the film that you would like to watch. It's all there. And what is really clear to me, um, and I, I don't want to really get into this too far, but with the advent of Blade Runner 2049, I feel because there is no anything in terms of a in-depth just you know dive into the how a sequel got made and all of those things it feels incomplete as much as i love the film as much as a, a masterpiece that i think it is it doesn't have that without the that really important um documentary kind of chronicling all of it it doesn't feel as complete as the original um so and that's just really a testament to the work that you put into blade runner and to dangerous days and getting everyone involved and scheduling all of those people. I mean, it, it's just an amazing thing. Um, well, thank you again. I, I really appreciate it. And, and it was easy because, I mean, let me rephrase that. It was hard. The work was hard, but it was easy to stay excited about it because it was Blade Runner and because we kept, you know, interviewing so many wonderful people who told these incredible stories. And then we were uncovering all of this lost material and never before seen footage. And it was just like, it was easy to keep the motivation going, even though it was a long grind in terms of the day-to-day -day work um also every day there was a new discovery that you know made me giddy you know and so it was it was, uh, it was easy to kind of keep the flame alive uh during what was kind of a long grueling process but i i would i would do it all over again in a heartbeat you know i would i would love to relive you know that time because it was it was so fun is there any 
connection that you made? I mean, obviously, I know that you have many connections. You have many friends in the business because because you're in it. But is there anything from that time working on the final cut and doing Dangerous Days? I mean, I know they're kind of happening around the same time where you have a maybe a, a, a special friendship or a connection with maybe one of the cast members that you didn't have before. Um. I mean, certainly, like I'm, you know, I'm friendly with Joanna. Every time I see her, we get a big hug, and it's nice. And I've been out to her her house. She had a a, a Zora's incept date party um, a while back. Uh, oh, that's great! That's awesome. Yeah. So yeah, Joanna's great. Uh, she's fantastic. And um, you know, people like Tom Southwell and and David Snyder and um, and you know, I, I don't want to even begin the list because I'll probably forget somebody. But you know, there's there's people who I'm in contact with on Facebook, or we kind of you know talk to each other every now and then. Paul Salmon, you know, emails me a lot, and we're you know we're in contact. So, um, yeah, I mean, it was just it, it was it was a very interesting time because for the time we were working on it, everyone seemed like a family. Like everyone was trying to do the best they could to either you know, be there for the interview or go through their old boxes of stuff and dig up whatever materials they hadn't seen in years and years. Um, it was, everyone kind of came together. I mean, like out of the 80 interviews we did, um, Harrison Ford was the second interview and that, that blew me away because I didn't think we were ever going to get him, you know? And so we got him almost right off the bat. And that was, and in a way I kind of wish that we had waited, um, only because I might've gotten more stories out of the other interviewees, that I could have then, you know, gone to him with, but I felt like I have, I have to say, yes, let's get him right away because we, you know, he was going to go off and do another movie. And, um, you know, could you imagine if we did dangerous days and, and we had a chance to get Harrison Ford, but we missed it because we were going to wait for a, a later date. It's like, no, I, I had to, to jump on that. So, um, everyone really kind of stepped up and, and yeah, I, I'm, I'm friendly with a few of them, but I felt like during that process, everyone was very excited about it. And that was fun. You know, that was a lot of fun to be around that kind of energy. Probably the best friendship I think I got out of the, the Blade Runner Final Cut experience was um, Issa Dick Hackett, Philip Dick's daughter, um, who she reached out to me early, early days. Like we had just barely kind of gotten started. And she wanted to convey to me just how much or how, how important, you know, Blade Runner and Do Andrew's Dream of Electric Sheep and, and her dad are as though I didn't know. We had this, <laughs> we had this, we had this very awkward lunch where she was like, like passionately trying to sell me on how great Blade Runner was and, and, and her, and her dad. And I had to like stop her and say, you don't know who you're talking to. You're talking to someone who is just a maniac about this world and, and how much I love it. So we left that lunch, and she seemed very relieved and very happy, and that began that began a really uh, just lovely friendship to this day. Uh, you know, she's just such a wonderful person, and and has always been so supportive. and And we've we've tried to get other projects going beyond Blade Runner going together. Um, I uh, I was working with uh, Kaylin Egan, who is uh, Issa's uh, director of development. Um, and they work on Man in the High Castle. They, they just finished uh, that series recently. But we we were going to adapt one of Philip K. Dick's short stories, um, I Hope I Shall Arrive Soon, which we did. And we wrote a script, and it was an epic science fiction drama, and we all love it. And unfortunately, it's just really expensive. And unless, you know, it's got Marvel or Lucasfilm in the title, it's kind of hard to get a movie made these days. So, um, we, you know, we keep hoping that someday that will, will reemerge. But that was a wonderful relationship that came out of the final cut experience was, was Issa and, and the Dick family. And just, um, and, and I love that that's kind of like, 
that's where Blade Runner came from. Like, you know, it all goes back to the origin of, of the, the original, you know, story that suddenly now I'm friends with the daughter of the guy who wrote it. I just, I love that connection probably more than any of them. That's really cool. And, and that's really heartwarming to hear too, because, you know, everyone is heartbroken by the fact that Philip Dick, of course, famously died before he could see the final product, even though he seemed to be blown away by that screening famously. And uh, yeah, I read some of her, his daughter's editorials in the uh, Boom Comics series that they did on uh, on Do Androids. And um, she seemed to have the same attitude there where she was just, you know, she's there representing the trust and the family, but she was so happy to be working with people who obviously um, had reverence for the original work and for Philip Dick and, and all of, all of his amazing writing. So that that's really great to hear. Yeah, she's, she's phenomenal. Um, and, and I'm really glad that she and I could, uh, we actually, it was funny Warner brothers when final cut was coming out and it was doing the kind of the festival circuit. Warner's sent us to a few of those festivals kind of like as the, uh, the next generation ambassadors, I guess you want to call us for, for blade runner because, you know, Ridley couldn't go to everything and some of the actors couldn't go to everything, but we kind of hit all the spots as, as the uh, the keepers of the flame, and uh, that was really fun to like travel travel the world with Issa. That was a lot of fun. Pivoting back to what you said about uh, science fiction, and uh, I know we had you know there are people like Sid Mead who famously worked on um, the conceptual design for Blade Runner. Today, do you see? And I know it's a tough thing because you have things like Altered Carbon and all of these other things that are coming out that are essentially shadows of Blade Runner where it's, it's taken its cue aesthetically from Blade Runner without actually understanding what Blade Runner was doing with that aesthetic. But in light of that, is there a a film that you've seen or maybe something on streaming that you felt like was, wow, this, this iteration of the future is really profound. Has anything really moved you lately? Um, it's funny. I, I kind of forgotten about this film and I, and I love it. It's just that I, I've, I've moved on, but I, I rewatched it recently and that's, uh, Spike Jones's her, um, I, I rewatched that. And to me, that film captures a spirit of Blade Runner that's beyond the, uh, aerial holograms and the rain and the, the you know, the, the flying cars. I feel like people who try to create their own future and again this goes back to what i was saying earlier i feel like invariably it's got the stamp of blade runner on it but her didn't her captured more of the spirit of our relationship with technology and artificial intelligence and and is something that's man-made is it a viable not only is it a viable life form but does it have a soul And and i feel like that is the core of blade runner that's something that just keeps getting dropped every time someone focuses on the gloss and the the cyberpunk of it all they they tend to not go to the heart of it and the and the soul of it and that's you know that has cursed most films and and i and re-watching her recently i was just floored by what a sweet beautiful profound um touching film that is with you know it, it's got some really cool future tech in it and its depiction of future los angeles i think is um original and its own thing and um not something i've seen in pretty much any film or any tv show so i think the whole dark rainy steamy night cyberpunk vibe is just so played out that you kind of need to have a take on our relationship with uh artificial life because i think that's the core of blade runner and it reflects upon how we how we are as humans 
You know, it's like how we we treat our creations uh, reflects upon us. And I feel like, man, so many films that come out, they're so interested in the flying cars and the cool guns and all that stuff. And they're just that's not the heart of Blade Runner. That's why I still think Blade Runner is just a magnificent film, because, you know, Batty's final speech is just so incredibly encapsulates that film and, 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 and why it was important that we took that journey. You know, it wasn't all the artifice. It was really the, the, the heart and the soul. And, um, yeah. So I'd say, I'd have to say her was the one that kind of got me recently. Cause I mean, it's, it's, it's been a few years. It's been what, maybe 10 years since that came out, but I, but I just watched it freshly recently and I, and I was, I was really floored by how much I loved it again. Yeah. It's an incredible film. It really is. And what's, what's interesting about her is it manages to reflect some of the oppression that you see in Blade Runner, which the aesthetics of Blade Runner helped to promote, but in her, everything's kind of sunny and light, but everyone's alone and everyone's kind of in their space, mm-hmm. talking on their phone, interacting with AI. And of course you have Amy Adams character who's kind of interacting with Joaquin Phoenix's character, but everyone f- has this like shield of isolation around them. And it's not this, even though it's set in this kind of sunny version of Los Angeles, it doesn't feel that way emotionally, which I think is uh, really great. I mean, the only other film that I could even reference that has that's kind of a future but that's plausible is like maybe children of men which really is oppressive without having any of the aesthetics of the blade runner universe but some of the same themes uh here and there um but it was able to conjure those themes and that feeling doing its own thing entirely which i think was pretty amazing yeah, that's that's a really great, I think, companion. If you're going to do a, a triple bill of movies, I, I could easily see her and Blade Runner and Children of Men all play together and all kind of capture a different facet of of how humans exist in the future and and how it's changed us. Um, I was going to say I, I just looked up her came out six years ago, not ten years ago, but I, I I feel like I feel like it was it was kind of at a time when people still weren't they they hadn't checked out of social interaction the way they have now. So when you watch her and you see people walking on the street, just you know, completely tuned out of the humans around them. And then you look at today and it's like, wow, we are so there. <laughs> you know, it's like we are totally. we are very much in that world. Um, so, you know, and then Children of Men definitely, I think, captured sort of like the, the post 9-11 future very hauntingly uh, well. So I think those three together would be a great, a great combo to see together. Yeah, I, I, I had, this is such a great conversation. It could be its own episode. I promise we'll get back on track in just a second. And I think Patrick's coffee explosion incident is over, so he can jump back into the conversation. But since we're- I did, yeah, I'm sorry. For, for those of you listening at home, I sneezed about 25 minutes ago, and I was drinking coffee, and I <laughs> covered everything that I own in my entire room. So I've been sitting here listening to this wonderful conversation, but frantically mopping up coffee out of the pores of my recording equipment. But I think mm-hmm. I'm good. Um, and, and I, and I, I just want to briefly say, um, those two movies are so like such wonderful examples of how you do sci-fi different and right. And I think it, it's not just a chance that both of those films are actually sort of shockingly bright just from an aesthetic standpoint. Like, I feel like part of why children and men is such a, such a memorable aesthetic statement is because it's so like Quaron like lights it so intensely and it's a lot of its natural light and it's very vibrant so even though the images that you're seeing are so dark and they're so scary and they're so um, graphic, they're, it's almost like there's fluorescent lighting above it, you know? Um, and same thing with her. Like, her almost is shot like it's some sort of a beautiful, like, Apple present, keynote presentation, you know? It's, it's refulgent. It's just this gorgeous, colorful thing. 
Um, and Blade Runner, of course, is the, the antithesis of that. It's like it's like you know burning very darkly. Um, and I think it's it's interesting because just the the simple fact that both of those films are lit so differently helps us to see that they're thematically in some ways really kindred and in some ways, um, you know, really different as well. Um, I just want to point out one thing that I wanted to say while my mic was messed up. Um, we, we did a crossover episode recently, Charles. Um, and we were talking about, uh, specifically Bla- uh, the original Blade Runner film and what it you know meant to us and why we loved it. And we were asked the question, um, do we like cyberpunk? And I think we actually had some kind of fascinating conversations come out of it. And one of them was, was this thing that we arrived at where we realized that we don't sort of, natively like you know we don't like seek out necessarily cyberpunk in art and literature but why we love it so much in blade runner is because it seems like it's almost uh, cyberpunk in spite of itself like it's beautiful even though it's trying not to be you know like the aesthetic statements that it's making are happening just because they're kind of being wrenched out of the earth by the strength of the story and like nobody there wants to live in that los angeles nobody there wants to be rained on all the time nobody there wants to have this this advertising you know, covering everything they can see, but, um, but it's beautiful to behold and it comes out of just the narrative. And I think something you were saying that was really true is like, you almost can't make a science fiction film anymore without it being compared to Blade Runner, at least from a visual standpoint. And what's interesting is that Blade Runner isn't really compared to anything else before it, because the reason it looks the way it does is because they had such an understanding of the aesthetic statement that they were making. And it was so story driven. So I just wanted to kind of throw that in there. Yeah, you know, the other thing that's interesting is is you can kind of look at those three films uh, as like different times of the day. Uh, you know, you wake up with a sunny her, then it gets overcast in the afternoon with Children of Men, and then it goes dark at night with Blade Runner. It's like, it's kind of funny how oh, man. those three kind of just dovetail nicely into each other, you know? That, I, I smell a special edition, collected edition <laughs> DVD. <laughs> Uh, before we move on to the next section, just because I, I can't, I can't hold my tongue. I have to throw it in there. I wanted to say that, um, in terms of some of the melancholy and feeling of Blade Runner, the way you mentioned her in a totally different way, um, Moon is Duncan Jones's Moon is a movie that totally gave me, now, aside from the fact that on a smaller ish budget and on a small studio, they made the visuals look really beautiful and great but that feeling of isolation and the feeling of you know discovering essentially spoiler alert but discovering that you are not the original human that you thought you were and trying to come to grips with that and being faced with a copy of yourself and realizing your wife isn't yours you're just a cop like that whole concept i thought was very existential and and had some very deep roots in Blade Runner without you know copying anything I just wanted to throw that out there because I I really love that film it's it's in my top top 10 for sure yeah it's a great film I'd I'd probably um group that with maybe a couple other different films like I think that I mean beyond the aesthetic you know it's definitely more I think in the alien universe than Blade Runner universe but I but I but alien has evolved in its own way to to address artificial intelligence artificial life and um you know what began with Ash just being kind of like a uh, a spoiler villain in the film, um, you know that through Prometheus and what came after, it's like well that the the AI part of this all has has grown to become almost as important as the alien itself, you know, um, in the in the, the way the films have evolved. I don't know if that was originally intended, but it's just where we're at. So I, I think Moon, uh, it's a, I love Moon. Moon is a wonderful film. I actually saw it at Sundance at the at the premiere of it, and it was uh, it kind of caught everyone off guard. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I, look, there's, there's different, 
there's different flavors to all these, you know, I, I like concepts and ideas and, and, and worlds. And, um, I'm glad we have so many to enjoy. I just feel like, you know, I, I hope filmmaker filmmakers can kind of try to reach beyond Blade Runner. I think there's stuff there. It's just, it's, it's just so easy to get sucked into Blade Runner because it's such a intoxicating and inviting world as harsh and as dangerous as it seems. It's still a world I want to go visit. You know, I mean, there is kind of like this sexiness to it that it's just like you just want to you want to get lost. You want to go down like a, a back alley in, in, in Blade Runner and just like what's what adventure awaits or what what dangerous, um, you know, moment is ahead of me. It's like I, I kind of just like that. I like I like how uh, I don't know how cryptic and mysterious it is. And I want to I want to just explore that world versus something where it's obvious, you know, where everything is obvious and, and easy to figure out. Blade Runner is not easy to figure out, and that's why I, I think yes. I'm always going to think about that. Totally. And totally. I, one, one other thing that's related to something that you just said that I wanted to say while I was cleaning up my computer was um, something that I love about the final cut. And, and I should just briefly, because we haven't gotten to talk about this um, you know, previously, but you know, I, I, I loved the theatrical release of Blade Runner, and it was something that was in my blood since my childhood, but I didn't fall madly in love with it until the final cut. That was when the movie became what it is to me today. Um, and I think part of that is because it became truer to what it actually was supposed to be in the first place. But, like, things weren't in place to realize that vision yet. And I think something that you said about Ash sort of being this the beginning of this line that led us to where we are with the David stuff and Alien now, I think over time, great films are ambivalent enough and, uh, and deep enough that the actual themes that lie under the surface that we see in theaters is allowed to sort of percolate and to become what it was destined to be. And I think that, so like, you know, whereas Ash, like you said, originally was just sort of this like shocking twist, you know, it actually became the philosophical underpinning of what Scott is doing now in his final years of his career. Like that, that is what he wanted to do, you know? And I think similarly, the final cut to me, which is at one time extraordinarily abstract, and I think even more ambivalent than the previous releases of the film, feels truer to the nature of what Blade Runner actually is trying to say, precisely because it had time, we had time as a society Scott had time as a filmmaker, and you had time as as your own huge artistic um, presence in this process to to bring themes out after they'd sort of um, matured to the point where we could understand them in a in a deeper way. And it's funny because the themes that emerged from it are actually harder to talk about, you know, than um, what we get in the in the initial release of the film. But I, I love how there's this. In, in great art, there's this like con- constant sense of reconnecting with the source material and coming back to it, and it changes with us as we go on. And I think Blade Runner, part of why it will always be relevant is because it will always be something we can check in with, and it can mutate, and it will still work as a metaphor and as a as a thing to experience. That's yeah, that's I, I agree. Um, I think it's all very interesting take on it, and it's it also goes slightly against my kind of. Um, 11-year-old fanboy who looked at the original Alien and was just so floored by how real the Alien side of it felt, uh, the derelict, the space jockey, the creatures itself, themselves, um, that now we're at a point where we know it all. We've seen it all. We got the toy. We got the T-shirt. We got you know, we know everything about this, this creature. And I wish in a way that, you know, we maybe didn't learn about the engineers, you know, or, or that that was sort of like this mystery that we got a, got a glimpse of in the first film. And if we ever saw them again, they would be just as, 
you know, unreachable um, as in the, in the first film. But now um, that it went the way that it did, I think it's it's totally right to 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 t- tap into this sort of notion of, you know, uh, creation and gods creating life, which then create their own life and so on and so forth. Uh, that's all. I think it's all a, a sound approach. It's just it's just it's too um, I don't want to say it's too easy to understand, but it's, it's like we we can we get that, you know, like that's an easy concept to grasp. It makes total sense. Whereas I, I keep envisioning this other track of alien films that became more and more of a puzzle and more, you know, more it, it became deeper in terms of like, well, what is this world? Why are the space jockeys doing what they're doing without actually ever having to explain it? Where they were more like survival stories where the humans were the ones that were tested and the humans were the ones that kind of like learned about themselves. And along the way, they maybe got tiny little glimpses of the mystery. But now I feel like the mystery is blown. It's like, it's, it's, it's fully out there for you to enjoy. And you know, now it's, a, it's a completely different thing and that's fine too. It's just, I'm always going to be thinking about those, eight, you know, those 14, 16 foot tall space jockeys versus the eight foot tall engineer. Um, Cause I, I feel like that was the world I wanted to see more of, but it's all good. <laughs> it is all good. And there are still mysteries to uncover that have not been answered yet. And sometimes when we get answers, they beget more questions too. So I, I'm, I'm optimistic. Yeah. I think we'll, we'll still have stuff to talk about. Cool. Here's a, a bit of a non sequitur question for you, Charles. Do you ever have experiences or meet people and Blade Runner obviously might come up and they kind of don't get it or not to say that they obviously Blade Runner works on many different layers. It's, it's very complex film um that is about so many things but and i'm asking this because i i when we talk about altered carbon or other films or series that kind of reflect that aesthetic and i've realized that blade runner is not an aesthetic and that aesthetic in blade runner was established because the world was kind of kind of closing in on ever on the inhabitants of that parallel universe of 2040 or i'm sorry of 2019 and kind of what was going on there and that's why the aesthetics looks that way and so when you when you recreate it um in a you know as maybe as if it's a homage film or uh, a science fiction film where the downtown or whatever area looks like blade runner or maybe there's some lines it it always seems hollow to me because that's not what blade runner was ever about it was never about the visuals the visuals it was more, it was, it's always been about the story. So I'm curious if people have, have people ever kind of come up to you and say, well, I don't, what is, what is the film about? Do you, do they know better uh, when they talk to you or do you get to kind of get every response possible? Um, it's a couple different things. Um, you know, most people who know me, <laughs> they know that I love the film and chances are their film aficionados and they have seen Blade Runner to the point where they get it whatever there is to get they get it's just more of a taste thing and that you can't really you know you can't really crystallize to be right or wrong I I feel like people have said it's boring it's slow why is it so slow why is it so boring why is it so dark all the time why what's the rain it's like you get those comments um and I feel like, okay, that's just that's just your taste. You're not you're not gonna like this film no matter what, because you don't like those types of elements. Um, but I think that most people get the basic story and they get the basic sort of like um journey that Deckard is on, uh, and you know, hopefully his rediscovery of his own humanity through his kind of like final challenge with with Batty, I feel like 
people can, I mean, anybody can pretty much get that. That's It's pretty clean and it's pretty straightforward. There's no mystery about that. I think people are more, the people who don't get Blade Runner don't get um, why we love it so. Like, they could say, um, oh yeah, it's a, it's a cool looking movie. It's, you know, it's it's visually interesting, but we've seen a million films just like that. And I have to keep reminding them, yeah, but we didn't see that back in 1982. Like, that was, that was mind-blowing back then. Before Blade Runner, there was maybe, you know, Escape from New York, which kind of was sort of semi-dystopian the year before. And then there was like, you know, Star Wars had the used future look, but that was more fantasy. Um, the heavy metal movie uh, definitely had like a Blade Runner vibe to it, but it was kind of this 2D, not so great animation, you know, but it still had that Mobius uh, vibe to it. So I, you know, I think most people who don't get Blade Runner just don't get why we covet it and cherish it so much. And that, again, is like the secret sauce that you can't really explain. You know, it either gets you or it doesn't. And, um, yeah, I think I think it's 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 basically they either don't appreciate the melancholy and the bluesy vibe of it or they don't uh, understand why we're so excited when there have been so many other futures like it. And they, they just don't they don't have the context of when it came out. It was mind blowing. Yeah, totally. And like a lot of other things, it's not for everyone. You know, you're, you're never going to find everyone that likes it. But yeah, we've all run into those conversations. Um, so we do want to move into your work with the deleted and alternate scenes in a second. But I have one last kind of holistic fandom question that I wanted to ask you since this series is about fandom. And that's sort of like, you know, looking back in these kind of 35 years from, you know, probably you just seeing the film for the first time as a fan to eventually working on it. And then all the work you've done with the final cut. Um, how have, what, what's your personal perspective now that of course, now we have Facebook and all these groups online and, you know, you're very active on those and, and, and answer questions and stuff and jump into conversations. But how do you see um, the fandom of Blade Runner has changed from, you know, the early eighties and its beginnings to kind of now pivoting into 2019, I wanted to ask you sort of that bigger question. Um, I, I don't know if I've seen it change. I, I feel like the the same types of fans who loved it are the same, and the same types of fans who didn't like it are the same, although maybe more aggressive about it. But um, it's interesting because 2049, um, I think, sort of re-energized um, a portion of the fan base. Um, first of all, just to have a new movie to talk about. Um, but also the fact that that new movie came from a very accomplished and talented director who uh, usually has something to say and usually has a, a really poetic sense about the way he makes his films. Um, I think it was good for those, for the fans of 2049, it was good for them because it wasn't um, necessarily a cash grab, that they actually tried to do something meaningful. And, um, yeah, so I, I don't know if if it's changed much other than just the, the overall toxic culture of social media, you know, has become, you know, increasingly hostile and divisive. Um, when it comes to Blade Runner, strangely, I feel like everyone's pretty unified in terms of like you either love it or you don't like it. You know, um, there's not a lot of middle ground. There's not a lot of um, things to talk about if you're like there's not a, there's not a lot of middle there to talk about. And the only times I usually chime in is when someone gets something factually wrong about like why the final cut was made or what was done when someone says, Oh, it's just a few minor tweaks. And I have to jump in and say, there are over a hundred picture changes in the final cut versus the director's cut, you know? So things like that, I, I, I will chime in on. And then, and you know, 90% of the time, the, the person I'm talking to, they don't know what I did on it. So I have to then, you know, 
be the asshole and say, no, I worked on it. You know, and it's like, I, I don't, I don't, I don't like being that. It's but like the ultimate mic drop. Yeah. Well, it's, yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I never want to. Do you know who guy. you're talking to? Yeah. I never want to be that guy. So I just, I just try to politely point out that, well, this is why we did it. This is how we did it. And I can't believe uh, you don't know about the final cut when it came out. 12 years ago, you know, I mean, that, that's kind of like that blows me away too. that people who don't know about the final cut, they don't know about dangerous days, they don't know, know about the deleted scenes, like every once in a while, someone will post a link to the deleted and alternate scenes as though it's this new thing that's just been discovered. And it's like, we put that out 12 years ago, guys, it's like, it's been around for a while. And if you were truly a fan of Blade Runner, how do you not know that? You know, that blows me away. It's like, how do you not know that a, a super elaborate box set came out 12 years ago? Uh, for this film that you claim to love and know everything about, uh, that's that shocks me. So every once in a while, I, I'll either jump in politely or I'll just bite my tongue and move on to something else. It's funny. I still remember the first time I fired up Dangerous Days, uh, and I, d- I hadn't looked at the runtime. I hadn't looked at like what was actually in it because this I wasn't like active in online fandom in 2007. You know, I just sort of popped it in, and I was like, oh my god, there's so much shit in this. It's incredible. Yeah, there's such a wealth of of material. Um, and yeah, as a fan, that was like the ultimate, uh, the ultimate treat. Um, okay. So sort of pivoting back to uh, something that we're dealing with a lot with this ongoing series, as we mentioned, is talking about iterations of the film, some of the sort of the paleontology of it, like all the things that, you know, have been passed down through the years and discovered. And you happen to be obviously um, at a pivotal moment in the history of this project because, you you know, you had been uh, you had interned for, for Scott. You had worked with him on Alien for the DVD release. You were already in that um, environment. And then in 2000, you were contacted to start building this wealth of material up for the DVD release of the for and which was originally going to be in 2002, I think, right? Yeah, originally for the special. They were looking. Warner Brothers was looking to get it out as soon as we could get it out, and that originally it was going to be 2001 um, when it, when that first release was going to come out because I think at the time, the folks over there they just weren't fully briefed on how complicated Blade Runner's history was and how much had to be done and cleared and, and reworked and thought through. So then, and I kept saying, this is back in 2000 or 2001, whenever I I had the first conversation with them, I said, why don't we aim for 2002 and make it a 20th anniversary release? And, and there was some hesitation of that because they were like, you want to wait a whole other year to put this out? And I'm like, it's going to take that long. It's probably going to take that long to do that. And of course we had no idea it would be five years beyond that before we actually finally did get it out. So, um, yeah, it it was, uh, it was an interesting startup and, and you know, we, we didn't, we didn't get fully into it right away. It took a long time. We did uncover some deleted scenes. We uncovered just a few little knickknacks here and there um, in the early days, um, but we didn't get total access to the, the dailies and, and all the, the footage that was in the archive um, because it was owned by the uh, the Blade Runner partnership, Jerry Parencio and Bud Yorkin, and that deal had to get worked out first. So, um, so yeah, it was. we started, and then we paused, and then we started a little bit again, and then we really paused. And then around 2005, the first rumblings of, oh, this is really going to happen started to be, you know, I started to get, I started getting the phone calls around 2005 and then we went seriously into it in 2006 and 2007. And there's a moment in Future Noir, which we reference all the time by, by Paul Salmon, where he talks about um, when you found the Burbank storage facility and it was just full of, of this incredible material. Can you like walk us back through what that felt like? 
Well, here's the interesting thing was there. Yes, there was this uh, storage facility in Burbank called uh, Preferred Media. I'm sure it's still there. And they have just pallets and pallets and pallets of all kinds of stuff in storage, but a lot of film elements from multiple movies. And um, they, with the, the, the one time I did my first field trip out there, they had put out all the Blade Runner boxes on these pallets. And there was a lot. There were, if I recall correctly, there was, there was like 997 boxes of Blade Runner film elements and sound elements. And um, they were all kind of wrapped with like this kind of saran wrap thing to kind of keep them all together. And um, we were not allowed access to it right away. But the, but the, the, the terrifying story that came out of that was all of that material that had been just stored there without anyone really looking at it, all of that material from Blade Runner had been marked for junk in... 98 or 2000 i can't remember what it was like it was it was you know several years before no actually maybe it was even earlier than that but it had been it had been basically on death row for several years like that stuff at any point was cleared to be thrown away or destroyed just to make 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 shelf space you know um so that was the big like oh my god i'm so glad we got to this when we did to like at least tell them you know even though we didn't have control over it to say look unofficially please do not throw this away or please let us know if that junkie order ever comes in, it never did. It just, they forgot, they forgot they had it. They forgot to throw it away. Like that was the the miracle of it all. Um, so then we went back and with, with uh, Jerry Perenchio and Buddy Orkin's permission, we went back and um, started going through it, but, but we were not allowed to take it off site. So Kurt Galveo at Warner brothers brought a team of, of editors in to start going through all that material and logging it. And um, there were like four editors out there um, just working actually in the warehouse. And um, at some point I started looking at their logs and the descriptions of the shots would be akin to um, man walks through rain, man walks next to neon sign, uh, car in steam. It was like, it was like so like (laughs) descriptive. And, you know, here I am looking for like the lost gold and, and it was basically like, you know, future footage, you know, it was like, it was so, you know, nondescriptive. So anyway, that was, that was like in the 2001, 2002 first initial run. And then it wasn't until like 2005, 2006, where we actually were able to get our hands on the, the footage, take it to a proper uh, post house uh, and a deal was made so that we could do that because suddenly, you know, the whole thing was approved, was greenlit. The, the final cut, the uh, the special features, the deleted scenes, all that stuff was approved by the Blade Runner partnership. So we actually could begin working with it. And then I personally insisted I was going to write the logs this time. In fact, I, I just found my logs on, on like on legal pads that I wrote back then. Um from the point of view of a fan, like I would put like, you know, five stars next to something that was an amazing find. And then, you know, one star next to something that was like, all right, it's the, it's the 25th take of the sushi bowl being put down on the, on the table at the, at the, at the white dragon. So, um, you know, it was, it was stuff like that. That was just so amazing to like get up every day, go in and just start plowing through all of this footage. And it was like up on a video monitor and I would just be like writing notes for every, every slate and just say, okay, this is, this is something we've never seen before. And I made huge personal discoveries. I didn't, I didn't even know about, I mean, having read future noir, I know that Paul, you know, was deeply, deeply um, invested in, in the story of Blade Runner and all of its various versions. There was stuff I was coming across that wasn't even a future noir. And I thought, you know, this is incredible. We're finding like true, uh, you know, uh, true. It's like true movie archeology, span what we're doing. So 
that was uh, that was a lot of fun. But that led to a few different things, which I'm sure we're going to get into, which was, you know, what is going to be used for the final cut? What's going to be used for the documentary? What's going to be used for the deleted and alternate scenes? Sometimes, you know, there are multiple uses for this footage. And and that became the next challenge was like, OK, how do, do how do we transfer this all in, a, in the time that we have? And it does it's not super expensive for Warner Brothers to do. And where's it all going to go? And how are we going to, you know, integrate it into what we're doing? Um, but again, it was one of those things where, yeah, it was it was tough and it was a headache. But, man, it was so much fun. <laughs> it's like I would love to do it all over again. It's like the ultimate fan dream to have, you know. Just, just this wealth of stuff. It's, it's absolutely incredible. Yeah, if you ever auction off all your like personal notes and stuff, I will be like the first person at that auction <laughs> throwing down money just to own those notes <laughs> or some of them, anyways. And uh, I, I, I'm gonna pivot into the uh, actual alternate deleted scenes after this. But just out of curiosity, when you mentioned those 997 boxes, those are boxes straight up of film, or was it mixed materials like paperwork and everything too? Um. I'm going to say, based on my memory, it was like at least 90% cans and boxes of film. Like, that was okay. that was the vast, vast majority of it. I don't remember seeing any paperwork. It might have been some there um, or, like, tapes and things. Like, most of the tapes, like the like the three-quarter-inch tapes and the old formats or whatever, I got from Ridley's office in London. Like, that, there was a few things there that were of interest. Um but everything in the in the York and Parencio vault was um, was pretty much film or you know magnetic tape for for audio or just just something that was in a can or a reel you know basically. to know more about what was your process when you were approaching the deleted scenes and obviously from what you've said you had to kind of separate out what's going in final cut what's going in deleted but um when you started to assemble this i think it's about 45 minute sort of abridged version of the film because it goes chronologically with the deleted scenes um were were there things that you were told to sort of avoid exposing to the public or do you have carte blanche with what you could do? And were you going for a specific narrative? I just wanted to hear a little bit about your process when you were organizing things for the deleted and alternate 45 minute uh, piece that you did. Well, um, so again, you know, I'm going through all this footage. I'm trying to figure out what, what, where it should live. And, um, we had already found Warner brothers already had this in their, you know, in their vault was, um, like four or five, kind of roughly edited deleted scenes um like the hospital scene the two holden hospital scenes actually maybe just one of the hospital scenes the holden we found the second one later um then it was like uh, decker talking to that bartender at tappy lewis's bar about you know the sexies backstage um gaff talking to bryant about uh, metaphysics like that stuff had already been located um but I did still look for the footage for those scenes to think maybe we could find a, you know, a cleaner element that we could use to make it look better. But um, as I was going through all this footage, I started seeing tons and tons of like takes and, and alternate angles and things that were really interesting and they weren't in the film. And I flagged those. They will transfer them and we'll use them for something. And uh, and I, you know, I pulled a lot like there were a lot of things that I thought were interesting. Simultaneous with all this. Um, the editing team had found audio recordings of what were uh, Morgan Paul's 
soundalikes for Deckard, um, which were used for the first trailer for one of the, the like the, the first like full trailer where you hear a, like a Deckard style narration, you know, like I was in a city of 106 million people and I didn't know they were looking for me or whatever, you know, all that stuff in that trailer. That was Morgan Paul who played Holden doing a Deckard sound alike for the trailer. So we found all those sessions and then we found Harrison Ford's first stab at the narration, um, which was nowhere near what they used in the theatrical or international cuts of the film. It was completely different. It was radically different. And um, so we found that. And I'm thinking, okay, that's awesome. We have to include that, but it's just audio. How do we find a place for that to live? And usually on a lot of DVDs back then, if you had just audio, you would almost make it like on, on the menus, like a playlist and you would just kind of click on it, like a listen to like a radio show version of what you just of what you wanted to listen to. And um, then the idea slowly crept in. I started thinking that okay, what if we took all of this footage that doesn't really have a cohesive narrative to it, but it's interesting, and then we took the voiceover and slapped that on top of it to give it a narrative. We started doing that, and the and the kind of the early you know cuts of that were really. Uh, encouraging and fun and that's when i kind of started thinking well maybe we can just stitch this into an abridged 47 minute version of the film just that's just deleted or alternate scenes and and even if it's a scene that isn't truly deleted at least we'll give you an alternate take or a different angle or extend it just so that it can give a place for the voiceover to live so that's kind of how it organically evolved and um i have to say of, of I've been doing this for like 20 years now in terms of like behind the scenes content. And I, I feel like of everything I've ever done, this was like my favorite, my favorite thing I've ever been a part of um, was the deleted and alternate scenes to Blade Runner, because to go through all those raw dailies of, of, of the, of my favorite film, you know, to go through all that stuff, to see everything that was shot from different cameras, different angles, different takes to see the mistakes, to see the, the weird ideas that didn't fully evolve. And then to, have this miracle of the alternate voiceover of, of Deckard and to be able to use that to give a new life to all that footage and then to have it come out as like a semi, you know, understandable story onto itself. Um, that was, that was amazing for me. I, I mean, to this day, it's still the most sort of like combination of fun and pride and just satisfaction I think I've ever had in, in doing behind the scenes content. Was there any point, even as you look back now, where you, in the process of discovery, uh, in, in, in the boxes, the films that you're looking at, the deleted scenes or alternate takes or all of these things, where you thought for a moment they should have included this scene or this, even though we love Blade Runner and you made it the best that it could be or you helped to kind of make a wonderful thing even more shiny, um, was there anything that you're like, oh, wow, this this should be in the film, but you didn't include it. Um, believe it or not. No. Um, I, I think the final cut is the best version of the film, even with all that, you know, additional material, which I think lives nicely in an alternate universe that we are fortunate enough to be able to see. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I, I feel like the, the final cut is the best version. There are still some things I'd like to tweak with the final cut. I mean, I'm, you know, there are things I look at and like, Oh, if we just had a little more time or if we just kind of rethought this a little bit, but, um, you know, it was a combination of we had a date, um, we had to get Ridley's approval. You know, he put a lot of work into it. I mean, in terms of like the color timing of it and 
you know, his notes. I mean, it wasn't like he just sent us a memo and, and said, change this, change this. That's okay. Whatever. He was, you know, he was on site, like working with us, um, whenever he had the time and whenever we needed him for a, a decision. But, um, I think the final cut is, is, is it. I mean, I think that my, minus a few little tweaks that I would do personally for my own little mental fan edit. Um, I'm, I'm good with that cut. I, I think it's, I think it's the best one. On the same topic, just, but kind of general, is there any other film that you feel like you would love to, not that you would like approach a studio, but like kind of in your fan dreams or whatever, like for instance, Alien 3 is a, is a film that could certainly use the final cut treatment in terms of making um, the effects appear more seamlessly in the film and just kind of polishing it a little bit because it's a little bit rough around the edges. Is there any film that you would consider doing that for? Well, I mean, just specifically since you mentioned Alien 3, it's like I, I feel like we did the best we could with Alien 3 because Fincher did not want to be involved at all. And I get it. Yeah. I totally understand why he didn't want to be involved. But um, his involvement would have made it you know, that much more of an authentic alternate version, whereas right now it's like more of an artifact that we just kind of dug up, polished, did, did the fixing that we were able to do. Um, and get it out. And I, I still think it's an improvement. You know, I still think it's a it's a better totally. version of that film. But um, oh, people Fincher, love it. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, it's 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 better. You know, I'm not going to say it's perfect, but I I enjoy it. I, I have a special place in my heart for Alien Three, and I and I feel like the uh, the assembly cut, the, the the one that's on the Blu-ray, which we cleaned up even more beyond the DVD quadrilogy version. I feel like that is a is a pretty good entry into a solid tri- Ripley trilogy. You know, and I think if you follow. Alien being about birth and aliens being about life and Alien Three being about death. It's a nice, tidy trilogy. It's like that's and and I think it ends honorably. It's, you know, it's not perfect. It's a little bit of a mess, but Sigourney Weaver gives a fantastic performance in that final film. So it's a great, you know, swan song for for Ripley. Um, I would agree one hundred percent on that. As I believe Fincher might have said himself, it's like the only way to do director's cut of Alien Three is to burn the negative on what we have now, go back in time, and start from scratch and give him total creative control you know over the script over the casting over the production design over everything which you know being a director of his talent i'm sure he exerted quite a bit of control over what we saw um but we also know from the behind the scenes on that film that he had a lot of interference from the studio and from the producers and and everything else so you know that's a completely different can of worms than than blade runner um so in answer to your query um i um I uh, I've always wanted to say that in a real sense. Um, I, I don't know if there's another. <laughs> I don't know if there's another movie that I would want to like try to do the Blade Runner treatment on. I mean, there are. They just. I don't know if I've got. I don't know if I have, I have it in me, frankly, because it is. You know, it's a big chunk of your life to throw into it, and these are films that I think are interesting. I hope someone does. Like for instance, there's some alternate lost version of enemy mine that's that's never been seen i don't even know if the footage exists there's an alternate uh i think for like five or six weeks there's a completely different jaws 2 that was being filmed with it where brody dies and there's a, oh, wow. they, shot his, they shot his funeral and everything I mean, you can find images of that online and that's stuff i would love to see i don't know if i'm the guy for that it's like maybe you know maybe if i, I would make a documentary and then incorporate that footage into it but what it took to do blade runner final cut um that is special and that and you need a special film for that and a film that has been not treated well over the years and it has been sort of it's it's cut and it's uh, director's vision um disrespected in some way or or just not followed through upon I, I think that 
that is i think we i think i'm good i think i think doing doing blade runner and even and even alien 3 in its own kind of lesser way i feel like those are the two crown jewels of you know the 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 restoration side of things where i think f- there was a fan base that was interested we had the the studios backing we had the access to the materials um in the case of blade runner we had ridley involved in the case of alien 3 we didn't have fincher involved but those are oh, those are the ones that i think are i'm um, the happiest about now in in some really wild alternate universe i would love to i hate to use the word fix but i would love to do star wars and like the entire original trilogy i mean like i feel like those films the original you know 77 1980 83 versions of that original trilogy can be restored people say oh they destroyed the negative when they made the special editions i there are so many different ways to to restore something these days and to fix things and we're seeing it with fan edits fan edits The specialized edition. Yeah, the specialized edition. I mean, they don't have the best elements, but man, it's good enough. You know, it'll it'll do in a pinch. You know, if you if you really want to see the original versions of those films. So I feel like I would love to do a definitive um, collection of of you know, look, the the Star Wars nerd in me would say I would like to do all nine and make the ultimate box set. And I know exactly how to do it, and I do. I've I've even sketched it out in like my own private like notes. I thought, okay, if I if they ever ask me to do a proposal, here's the proposal, but um. I think those films could use a bit of love in terms of the historical importance of those original versions. I get why George Lucas wanted to change them. I understand like he was unsatisfied with a lot of things back in the day and now he has the technology and the ability to to fix these things. It's just, it's coming from such a very different perspective and, and philosophically, I don't even know if I agree with how he did it because with Blade Runner, it was all about, keeping the audience engaged in the film. So when you see the original Zora death scene, you're taken out of it because half the audience is giggling because the stunt double looks nothing like Zora and she's got a bad wig on and it's this languid slow motion shot, shot with a beautiful long lens and all we're doing is scrutinizing that it's not Joanna Cassidy as Zora, you know? So suddenly we're out of the movie. I remember, I mean, when I saw Blade Runner opening day, at the man Hollywood, uh, it, the audience was, was tittering and they were laughing, you know, because of that stunt double shot that took you out of the movie. So my thing is if you're going to make a fix, do it so that it keeps the audience in the movie. So they don't get distracted. They don't, they don't start laughing or they don't start pointing fingers at like, Oh, look at that mistake. You know? And I feel like with star Wars, there's been, there were a lot of changes that took you out of the movie because they were so extreme and so, you know, noticeable that suddenly the the time code in your head has been disrupted and you're thinking, oh man, look at that new creature and look at that droid floating through the, sh- the shot. And, you're like, and suddenly you're out of it. You're not in the world because you're now re-evaluating this film that you've already been in love with for decades, you know? Uh, and that's not, I, to me, philosophically, that's not how I would approach it. Um, but again, it's like, it's not my thing. It's like, it's not my car. I'm not going <laughs> to, we're, we're going back to the car analogy. It's not my car. I'm just, I'm just looking at the car from across the street lovingly hoping that one day I get to drive it, but we'll see. Totally. Uh, my final question in terms of deleted scenes, uh, obviously having seen the 45 minute cut and other things, most everything was like, Oh wow, that's neat. That's a different angle. But one scene, which didn't make the, the, you know, the final cut and or iterations of the films or the film is the scene with Holden where he's in his stasis cryo. Of course he's awake. And that scene was continues to be like incredible in terms of the way it's designed. It reminds me a little bit of alien. It has this, that kind of sense of the, the, the mother room uh, from alien. And um, is, was there anything like that to you that you were like, okay, Hey, this 
this is neat, this is great, but you were kind of like blown away or was all of it this continuing process of discovery and you're feeling like that kind of from one thing to the next as you discover? Um, I mean, look, the, the whole thing was discovery. The whole thing was like, how, how do we... <sighs> how do we best present this material? Because there was a, there was a different cut of the hospital scene that had gotten out years earlier that appears in, um, on the edge of Blade Runner, which is a documentary I happen to really love. Um, and, and you get a little hint of it, but that was a different, that was kind of like this weird cobbled together, like work print version that was not truly finessed and, and cut together, but also because they didn't have the material like we had on the final cut. Same with the unicorn scene, the unicorn scene in the director's cut was an outtake of the unicorn scene um we got not only did we get all of the unicorn dailies for the final cut but we got the original cut as ridley and terry rawlings put together back in the day so um what appears in the final cut is actually believe it or not a hybrid of the original very first cut the 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 ridley rawlings cut of the unicorn scene mixed with the director's cut outtake because it just it seemed to make the most sense to bridge um that moment and um, so, yeah, beyond that, I mean, I don't know if I'm answering your question, um, but I just kind of feel like there was. No, you are. Totally. There's a lo- there was a lot of stuff that was, you know, it was all interesting. And and, and actually to kind of go back one of the, to one of the previous questions in terms of, you know, is there anything I would have wanted to put in um, from the deleted scenes? It's not so much that, but there was maybe a different approach to the moment when uh, Batty dies and Deckard is staring at him, you know, all the 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 way we did it was basically trimmed down a bit to allow for or, or to to acknowledge that there's no more voiceover there right so it was it was trimmed a little bit so that it would wouldn't go on forever but but i think in that scene it was the closest to being as is in the original cuts but without the voiceover so we're hanging on deckard a long time staring off into space and if i had to do all over again and actually i did in the deleted and alternate scenes version um, was I would have cut to the wider shot of the two of them on the rooftop and then Gaff's spinner rising up in the back of the frame. Um, if you look at the at that moment in the deleted and alternate scenes version, that's probably closer to what I would have wanted to do had I had the say to do it on the final cut. But again, it was, you know, Ridley seemed to be happy with the way it was. And that's that was the whole point of this, was making him happy because he hadn't been... He hadn't had his, his chance to really fully polish the film up until that point, um, but if if it was completely my say, I probably would have I probably would have put in that different version of the 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 end of uh, you know after Batty dies, and um, I'd probably revert you know I want more life father back to fucker, um, but beyond that, I think it's it's pretty good as it is. There's there's tiny little tweaks, believe it or not. There's tiny little visual effects things I see now that drive me insane, and I and I think, why didn't we fix that? But uh, I'm not going to say what they are. <laughs> well, that that leads it. So we're not going to keep you on the phone forever. I promise. We're going to wrap here soon. It's, it's but, okay. Um, just briefly, I wanted to give you a few like rapid fire questions since I I just rewatched the deleted scenes last night, and I was kind of uh, you know the guys were like traveling and doing stuff, so I wanted to make sure that we together we uh had had a vision for that and i could ask a few specific questions so um and and if you want to pass on any of these for whatever reason you don't even have to explain yourself you could just say pass and we can edit it out that's totally fine um but speaking of things that people bring up 
that say weren't fixed, which you're obviously very aware of. I don't remember ever hearing if anybody answered the question about uh, why Zora's heels thing uh, couldn't get fixed, which I'm sure you guys looked at. Did you have an answer for that at all? Um, we, we could have fixed it. It just there there came a point where it was sort of like, are we gonna, are we really going to go into every tiny little fix that we can identify because basically I think it was John Sheely who's uh, the, the visual effects supervisor in the final cut. It's like he said, you know, you start fixing the big mistakes and then suddenly this whole new crop of medium sized mistakes show up and you fix those. And then suddenly a much bigger crop of smaller mistakes starts to show up. And it's almost like you're playing whack-a-mole, you know, trying to like make these fixes. And at some point like Sora's heels, Gaff's eyes, you know, things like that. It was sort of like, well, we could fix it, but we ended up, as I think in one of the documentaries, referred to him as like uh, beloved flaws because it's like, like they don't take you out of the story. Um, hardcore Blade Runner fans will notice them, but they're not. If, if you're looking at Zora's heels, then you're not engaged by the movie, you know? Totally. And, and <laughs> that's a good I, point. <laughs> you know, I say that all the time whenever we're setting up shots for like behind the scenes documentaries or whatever. And the, 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 the camera operator wants to tweak this one little thing way, 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 way in the back. And I'm like, if people are looking at that thing way in the back, then we don't have it. We don't have a documentary. We don't have a story because no one is paying attention. If they're looking at the thing way in the back, it's what they call the hamster factor in the 12 monkeys documentary where Terry Gilliam became fixated on this tiny little hamster on this little wheel that if you're looking at that and you're not looking at Bruce Willis and this huge, you know, futuristic set he's on, then you don't have a movie, you know? So it was the hamster factor applied to Blade Runner at some point. That totally makes sense. Yeah. That's a good answer. Um, yeah, I, I love the opening scene to the deleted scenes with that alternate blimp scene that comes in from the right. It's kind of a different angle than what we're used to. And I even noticed last night for the first time as I was, you know, taking notes and really trying to soak in the details that there's like these, uh, I think they're animated, but there's these acid rain clouds kind of at building height, you know, in the middle of the city raining down and just the rain effect is really great. Um, so yeah, I, I just wanted to ask you, uh, why you think that I think Ridley didn't even use that shot. I mean, of course the blimp scene that is in the, in the film is gorgeous, but I, I just, I love that alternate blimp scene. I was wondering if you could say two things, a couple of things about that. Well, you know, it, believe me, the first time I saw that alternate blimp shot, I, I was freaking out because I had no idea we were going to be seeing not, I mean, I knew we were going to see, be seeing new like film production footage, but not visual effects footage, like finished visual effects footage. Like that was a big surprise. Um, so look, it, it's just not quite as, artfully handled as many of the other shots and and also it it's from a weird perspective like the the first big blimp shot in the movie when deckard looks up from his newspaper that's his perspective you're at ground level looking up at a blimp so it's it feels more real whereas the alternate version you're kind of like randomly up in the air with the blimp and it's static you know you just you're like really rock solid static watching his blimp come into shot and in the background is sort of vague it's like you don't you really don't get a definition of what those buildings are those kind of pyramids and that kind of very sid mead looking background i mean it's beautiful but it also it doesn't necessarily lure you in the same way those opening shots of the hades landscape do in the film because you're actually kind of moving over them um so yeah i I just think it was just a matter of it being not quite as maybe elegant as what ridley would probably want and um and the perspective of it seems to be kind of just out of nowhere yeah, that totally makes sense. I can see that. I think uh, when we were talking about it, Patrick mentioned something like that as well about the perspective. Um, in, in that scene and in other scenes that also made the final cut, I'm, I'm curious about one detail that I've never had 
question or I've never seen questions about, but there's a big, there's a large M on one of the buildings. You can see it in the alternate blimp shot. You can see it in the Bradbury street scene. The one that was so beautifully um, cleaned up and redone for the final cut. I'm curious if you have any idea where that comes from or what it's supposed to stand for. I don't. You copy on that one. I'll have to take a look at it again. Cool. Yeah. I love that. I love that detail. Um, And speaking of things that didn't make the 47 minute cut, it was kind of, it kind of stuck out to me that we go from... I know what you're, I know what you're going to say. I know what you're going to say. Can oh. I guess? Well, sure. sure. Mm. Decker j- jumping on top of the cars. Oh, that's not what oh, okay. I was going to go. But talk about, go ahead. Oh. No, no. Talk about that. Please. Well, okay. So, <laughs> you know, famously back in the day, there were stills of Decker on top of the, the cab looking for Zora. And, um, and it's not in the movie. You know, he kind of like hops between cars a bit and she kind of jumps on a hood or whatever. But it's like these, this, these big shots of Deckard, you know, on top of the, the, the cab in the middle of everything, not in the movie. So obviously when I was going through deleted scenes, that was like one of the number one things I wanted to find because it was such an iconic image that I wanted to see the footage of. So we found a little bit of it, but we didn't find enough to stitch together an entire sequence. Now, Strangely enough, the only time I ever saw the footage of Deckard coming down off the cab and then like pounding the window of like the cab was like kind of crowding him a bit and he he pounds the window and he's like, get back, get back. I've only ever seen that in behind the scenes footage, like EPK on set footage. I've never seen the actual film unit version of that. We've only seen Deckard jump up, look around and and that was it. So when we're cutting that that 47 minute kind of coherent narrative together it 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 seemed like it was gonna be a big hiccup to just kind of randomly cut out of that with with no reason but the voiceover beautifully set up that kind of hard cut to black where he's where deckard says you know i couldn't shoot a woman right hard cut to black next shot boom she's being shot it was just dramatically a much more interesting transition and we do use that footage of deckard on the rooftops of the cars in dangerous days and other featurettes. So you, you do get to see the footage. And I do believe some fan edits out there have, have incorporated what they could into that, um, of that scene into their, their own cuts, the movie. But anyway, I thought that's where you were going to go with, uh, no, no, that's great. I, I love to hear that detail and, and I'll get to my question. Uh, but you bring up the voiceover, which I'd never considered that. Of course that wasn't in the scene that you used and you guys pieced it together, which is really cool. And I love what it does. There's a particular one at the beginning where Deckard's talking about Holden and being retired. And one of the lines from that, which I didn't notice until just last night is um, he's talking about his wife running off with a guy who made a fortune in the colonies. And his next line is, I I thought I'd have a shot at being human again. I'm, and I, th- I was like, wow, that's such a powerful line. And it gets into the whole Decker rep, which obviously we're not going to go into. But I, I, w- I thought that was really cool that you picked that voiceover out because it has such a powerful line. Well, the, the deleted and altered scenes have a couple bonus Decker rep things in there as well. You know, I mean, like you and I were made for each other at the end. And uh, right. you've done a man's oh, job. Yeah, so are you sure you really are a man? You know, it's like there's a, there's a lot. Anyone yeah. who says that Decker rep is a, is a post-release idea of Ridley's where he was trying to be clever – it's wrong. It's like they were thinking about that back in the day. And we even have that in dangerous days where Hampton Fancher and Harrison Ford were very against that. So that was not like a, a new thing. He was thinking about that way back then. And the deleted and altered scenes kind of prove that. You're saying he was thinking about leaving it ambiguous or. What, no, he what? was, he, he wanted, I mean, he wanted Deckard to be a replicant and how he handled it 
was going to be his version of clarifying it for you was the unicorn dream, right? Got it. And and as he says in the documentary, if you can't figure it out, you're a moron. Um, that that's him saying that, not me. <laughs> uh, but but um, but yeah, I think I think in his mind it was it was clear enough. I don't think you had to like completely underline it with a red marker. I think that you know between that and between the glowing eyes and between just some of the other little clues, that was his you know his clarification of it. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It, it, yeah, I, here we are. We're talking about Decorap. We got stuck into it. Um, let's move on. We're not stuck. We're not okay. stuck. <laughs> We're not. It's, it's funny because when we have people on the show, one of the things we start with is is usually like, let's try not to just fall into that conversation yeah. again because it never ends up going very far. But, you know, but getting to talk to you about it is different, obviously, because you have some incredible perspective on it. Oh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> My, I'll, I'll, I'll end uh, the specific list of questions with la- one last specific question. That was the one that you uh, tried to guess. But I was going to say in that. Uh, again, 47 minutes sort of cohesive narrative. The one thing that I noticed was missing um, was you see Deckard approach the Bradbury building and then it pre- I, there's a couple things in between maybe, but eventually it, it cuts to Batty's speech. And what I noticed were there were no scenes of the Batty Deckard third act chase scene. And so from a uneducated layman's perspective, I'm like, okay, so Either that it was perfect and there was nothing wrong with that or there was nothing additional that they found that was interesting or they chose to leave that out for a different reason. And I was wondering if you could speak to that at all. Sure. Um, at that point, you know, again, we kind of gotten into the, the flow of it being a little mini version, an abridged version of the film. And there were some additional bits from the, the, the Deckard batty fight, um, which do appear in Dangerous Days and some of the other featurettes. I mean, the footage is on the disc if you want to see it. It's just that it didn't it wasn't worth it to try to create a little story point with it. It's like they weren't deleted scenes. They were just deleted shots, you know. So like Batty uh, breaking out the electrical cable out of the wall and electrocuting himself in the mouth. uh, That's a great moment. But that's then in order to make a moment for that to live in the deleted scenes, we would have to then give you handles on either end of that shot. And it just didn't seem worth it, you know, to like have to give you the visual context to see him do that one bit that took, you know, maybe three or four seconds of screen time versus just showing that somewhere else in one of the documentaries, which is what we did. So like that and the, the dead, like mannequin woman replicant thing in the tub, you know, like they're really cool moments and very visually striking, but to just kind of like drop that in willy nilly in that moment of the deleted scenes felt wrong. So, um, again, it's there if you want to see it, it's just not included in that, kind of like a bridge narrative that we were trying to make. Yeah, that makes sense. That's a really great answer. Um, that's all I have for you in those terms. I'll pass it back off to Jamie, but uh, thanks for your candid answers and going into the details with us. I think the fans will really appreciate that. Um, I, I can never stop talking about Blade Runner. So it's a, it's a, it's a sickness. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so actually a couple of final questions. Number one, there's a lot of things kind of coming out in terms of the Blade Runner universe. It's, it's being expanded. We have the comics. Uh, you've, they've released a couple of uh, alternate covers for the Blade Runner 2019 comics. We have an anime uh, series coming up. I want to say it's starting at the end of this year, but I think I'm wrong with that. I don't think that they have uh, released it yet. Um, how do you feel about kind of the, the, the path forward? And do those things interest you? Not to say that you're disinterested in them, but are you primarily film or do you like that Blade Runner is being expanded? 
Uh, and I don't mean sometimes expansion isn't good. Like, oh, just because you can do a sequel or an in-universe, another story doesn't mean it needs to be done. But do you pay attention to those things? Are you kind of on the pulse of what's going on in the community? Well, I mean, I'm on I'm on the pulse of all like film uh, and TV and pop culture. It's like it. So it's like it's not that I am ignoring it, but I'm going to politely say pass on this one. But I'll but I'll qualify okay. it a little bit to say that. Um, I'm just not quite ready to, to go into my thoughts on what's happened uh, with 2049 and beyond. So um, one day I will be, and one day I'll, I'll tell you everything. Uh, there's, there's, a, there's a bit of a, a story to be told uh, in terms of 2049, how it came together and stuff. And I'm not quite ready to go public with that stuff yet. So I totally but, understand. Okay. Well then let's, not- my final question then is, what excites you about science fiction and what do you feel like is what is the undiscovered country? And I know that it's a broad, it's a, it's a broad question, but I, I'm asking it from you personally. Like what, what do you feel like is left to be explored or what you would like to see? Man, that's a, that's a great big question. And I, 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 I man, I want to see science fiction that, does a better job of commenting on our world today because I feel like in the past the best science fiction has done that and I feel like because of the rapid advancement of technology and how we have all sort of again become addicted and lost to our devices that um, our, I feel like our imagination about the future is starting to fade because it's almost like the future is now and then five seconds later it's then and it's like it's just it's we we are caught we're catching up to the future literally in terms of our imagination every second of every day there's there's almost no time to dream about what's next about what's down the road and when you look at blade runner in 1982 and you think wow that was a really bold imaginative creative look at a future which is sort of coming true but it was a big jump it was a leap and i don't feel that same leap in hardly any science fiction film I see nowadays, and when they do do a big leap, it's almost like it becomes a fantasy because it's almost like magic. It's like it's like it's not connected, it's not grounded to the human experience. It's just flash and pizzazz and visual effects awesomeness, but it's not commenting on us. And I feel like that is what science fiction really needs to do. And going back to her, I think that was a really great commentary on us. And it was perfectly timed. It was the right time. It was the right movie at the right time. And I guess what I would love to see moving forward is let's look at where we where we are now, where you know we have a very politically divided country that we're in. We have a lot of environmental issues that we're you know ignoring. We have a, there's just so many things that are facing us in terms of great material to explore, and to discuss and get the conversation going and apply that to some future world or some other planet or whatever it is that science fiction allows for. Um, we should be doing that and not just rehashing movies that we loved as kids. Cause I feel like that is mostly what's happening now. It's like everyone's trying to do their take on the cool film that inspired them as a kid. And I'm seeing very little of what's the bold new idea that is, is about us, you know, and, and where we're going most importantly. Um, I think the best science fiction is cautionary. I think it is, it's the, the films that warn us about the path that we're on. But can do so in entertaining ways, sure. 
Um, and I'm just not seeing a lot of that, you know. And if, and, and if I am, it's certainly not the forefront. It's not what's being pumped in the you know multiplexes every Friday night. So um, yeah, I'm sorry to go sorry to go dark there, but that's kind no, of like, no, I I. I, I kind of just feel like I wish I wish that you know it's such a powerful genre and a, f- a powerful form of storytelling. I just wish it was being used in a less popcorn kind of way. Yeah, I think I've said this before. I feel like we're in this environment where every first of all the studios are risk averse. Streaming services aren't as much, and so they can take a risk and tell uh, more daring stories as we're seeing. Um, but everyone wants comfort food, and no one wants a cautionary tale. Um, I mean, you, well, you could say that maybe us is a cautionary tale, but it's certainly not for everyone for sure. Um, I'm dying to see it. I haven't seen it. I'm going to try to see it this weekend. Um, yeah. but I, I would, I, you know, you look at, there's so much great television on and there's so many amazing storytellers at work. And I, and, and I, and I've kind of traced this back. I hate to say it back to, to star Wars because I feel like star Wars was such a pop culture revolution. It was such a filmmaking revolution not just as a merchandising phenomenon but also in terms of inspiring kids to become filmmakers and if you look at the filmmakers who worked on the original star wars especially in the world building departments like the you know the art department and the conceptual design and the spaceships those artists all came from other industries they came from aerospace or car design or the military or whatever but they came from different industries they were not necessarily film geeks who were trying to you know recapture what it is that blew them away as kids. They were like people like Sid Mead, you know I mean? He was an auto design guy before he did Blade Runner and Tron and aliens. It's like he brought, he brings a whole different perspective to those films. The same way that Ralph McQuarrie brought a different perspective to the star Wars movies. Um, and nowadays, I mean, and this is just, you know, par for the course, but the kids who are now adults today and who are designing movies, they are informed by star Wars. You know, they're informed by all the science fiction films, including alien and Blade Runner um, that they grew up with. And as I, I feel like we're missing out on different perspectives um, in movies because I feel like nowadays we're just referencing other movies because it's easier to say, oh, it's just like that thing and that thing that I grew up with, you know, versus, well, you know, here here's a, a an airplane design that we didn't use for whatever reason, but let's rework it a bit. And now it's this original, all new thing that we've never seen before. Um, so I, I just wish that people would start thinking a little bit more out of the box, you know, look rely less upon Netflix um, and more upon other industries and other parts of the world and other, you know, other aspects to the human imagination that we're seeing unfold in the real world versus, Hey, here's that cool movie reference, you know? And I feel like that's kind of the the big challenge for filmmakers who are trying to create a, uh, an interesting and original future. Yeah. Uh, and, and to that point, the only thing that I've seen really that I feel like is somewhat original and is a cautionary tale is the Westworld series. Um, I don't know if you've seen that yet, but it's really yeah. a fresh take, and it it's kind of a, a a tale of humanity as told by people who aren't human, and I think it's fascinating. But what's interesting is Westworld's world building is pretty limited, right? Because it's mostly Western, or it's mostly yeah. samurai, or it's mostly yeah. some other culture. But you're right; I think it's it's a, that is probably one of the most powerful um, explorations, science fiction explorations on the human condition in recent years, and it's beautifully done and so well handled. But in terms of world building, it's pretty limited. Um, now, I do love the, the internal guts of the Westworld, you know, corporation or whatever it is that, you know, those those guys are working in all the labs and stuff. I mean, that that is really, in terms of a design uh, kind of uh, take, I think is beautiful. But 
in terms of like future and other worlds, that is maybe needs some more work <laughs> in terms of other yeah. movies, other, other yeah. shows. And really, uh, the only films, I mean, there's several, but like the films that have really impacted me in terms of sci-fi, that's not really a cautionary tale for where we're going as, as a, as a, a world culture or like, uh, under the skin with Scarlett Johansson or annihilation, uh, uh, stories are about, I, I, I can't even describe it, but it's certainly, they're very cerebral, um, nondescript, uh, journeys into, uh, the unknown. And, uh, that's one of the reasons why I loved alien is because it was very similar to that. Um, but yeah, I, I echo you and I, I wish that there was more. And, uh, you know, a, a couple of years ago, I said to a friend of mine, I said, where are the futurists today? Where are the people who are, who are designing the future? They're gone. There's, there's, there, there's no, not that there's no one, but there's no one as public as they were in the eighties when things were new, when we could, um, when we didn't live in the future as we do today, as you so, uh, perfectly said. Um, when I, when I inter- interviewed directors, other directors who were inspired by Blade Runner for Dangerous Days, one of the directors I spoke with was Mark Romanek, who is one of the best music video directors of all time and directed One Hour Photo um, and, and, you know, super talented guy and very smart. And I and I asked him, I said, you know, we've seen the, the, the clean and sterile sort of like white walled future of Kubrick's 2001 and star trek to some degree like variations of a very clean future and then we've seen the gritty dystopian future of blade runner and that's inspired tons of other movies in that same style but is there like a third future that we're not seeing like what what other futures are there and his answer was well if i knew that i wouldn't tell you (laughs) i'm gonna go you know i'm gonna go make that movie so it's like i I get it it's like you're you're gonna gonna jealously guard all these ideas and the fact that we haven't quite seen anything as groundbreaking i mean i guess you could say maybe the matrix but even the matrix was you know heavily influenced by anime and, and other things that we'd seen before it was just wrapped in a kind of a new package but um yeah i i don't know i hope it happens i i hope people can look at what we're going through today and just try to project 30 or 50 years in the future and and hope that they come up with something interesting that comments on it i mean david lynch's dune which gets maligned quite a bit i love it but, oh, me you know, too. Me too. You know, that's the year ten thousand one ninety one, right? Like that's way, way off in the future, and um, I, and yet it's such an original world. I mean, again, that that strays more into fantasy than science fiction, but it's still, in terms of the design, the design part of it, anyway, um, it's it's so beautiful. And w- when it comes to world building, I mean, that's second to none. I mean, that's like that's way up there with all the classics in terms mm-hmm. of having an original uh, universe. So. It's possible. It's doable. It's been done. It's just I, I wish we saw more of it. Given all the technology and resources we have today, I wish there was more inventiveness. Yeah. Well, that does it for me. I want to thank you so much for coming on. Uh, as always, uh, we really, of course, respect your work, respect the voice that you have, the 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 projects that you've been on, how you've impacted our world in terms of even what we're doing as a podcast. So thank you so much. Um, thanks for having me and, and I'm, I'm really happy you guys are keeping it all alive and, and you're using this here to really celebrate the film and, uh, and talk to different people. I think it's, I think it's great. Yeah. Thank you, Charles. To find out more about Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast, please visit us on our website at www.perfectorganism.com. 
Shoulder of Orion is available for listen or download through Apple iTunes, Google Play, and TuneIn Radio. If you'd like to join in the discussion, please join our official Facebook discussion group, Fields of Calantha, a Blade Runner discussion group.